0: Hello, America. Welcome to a new edition of John Solomon Reports, the podcast from Just the News. Where today we've got some interesting news. How about a governor with a pension for spending tax dollars on his favorite beach trip? Or big developments in the China front. Remember, two days ago we told you about China's non-compliance on the stock market. Well, last night the Senate took action to take uh, to address the very concern that we raised and. Lots of new developments on the Russia-Ukraine front. For instance, a court has now ruled in Ukraine that Joe Biden must be listed in official court records as an accused perpetrator of a crime. You got it. The crime is he fired the prosecutor who was overseeing his son's case in Ukraine. Uh, We're going to have that, plus a very important interview with the former governor of South Carolina, David Beasley. He's a conservative, a Trump supporter, and right now... He runs the World Food Program, the most important food program for addressing health worldwide. 100 million people a day get food from his program. Uh, He's a very effective leader. He's made a lot of progress, and he's talking about eventually getting to a point where we eliminate hunger, the need for this very big UN program. But he's got a dire warning, too, which is that the pandemic and the slowdown of the economy is going to worsen world hunger. And you're going to want to hear what he has to say He's not a guy that just issues lots of th- warnings and gloom is doom. He's also got a plan to get ahead of it and make sure that we don't have a pandemic of starvation after the coronavirus recedes. We're going to have all of that right after the commercial break. All right, folks, welcome back to, from the commercial break. So glad you're joining us heading into the Memorial Day weekend. And as promised, lots of news. We're going to start in the Commonwealth of Virginia, my home state. That's where today on Just the News, we broke the story that Governor Ralph Northam, a Democrat, been in office since 2018. Well, he's been using taxpayer funds to routinely go back and forth to his vacation home, his beach home, in the Outer Banks of North Carolina. That's right. His vacation home is not even in his home state. It's in the neighboring state, North Carolina. Well, we were able to... Pursue a Freedom of Information Act request, and we had to do several appeals, but we ultimately won access to the records. And here's what those records show. Over the last 18 months, Northam has spent a total of 65 days at the Beach House at taxpayer expense. That's about 13% of all of his time in office over the last 18 months. And he's used the state plane, a state car, a state security detail to facilitate his trips back and forth. It's a story about the sort of elitism and entitlement that our political leaders have today and a sort of disregard for taxpayers' money, particularly at a time when states are asking for bailouts and coronavirus money. Uh, for most of the last uh, 18 months, I would say 16 of the last 18 months, Northam or his wife spent at least one or more days at the their Manteo, North Carolina beach home. And I, one anecdote I think describes exactly why this is a public interest issue. So it's August 31st of last year. The governor's at his beach home in the Outer Banks of North Carolina. He was driven there four or five days earlier. His wife has been there. And they decide they want to go to the horse race track back in Virginia. So over a course of six hours, the state plane, using state pilots, using a state trooper as a security detail, picked up the flew from Richmond, went to Manteo, the North Carolina Beach Resort picked up the governor, took him to the um, uh, racetrack where he watched the race and then handed out a ceremonial trophy to the winner. Then flew back to the governor's uh, beach house and then flew all the way back to Richmond. Over six hours, four trips in the jet, all so the governor could go watch a horse race and hand out a trophy. That's the sort of detail that we have in our story today on Just the News. We obtained these records under FOIA, Open Records Law. I encourage you to go to the site and read it. You know, Governor Northam has had a lot of controversies. If you remember, he had to apologize for appearing in a yearbook picture uh, in racist garb and and, and blackface. He recently signed into law some controversial measures expanding abortion and restricting gun rights. So he's been on the national radar, but this... Beach jaunt thing is something worth reading. We hope you go to the site, take a look at it. We've embedded all the documents so you don't have to take our word for it. All the memos, the the emails, the track records, the cost to taxpayers, um, the, the airplane costs of about $1,600 per hour. I'm sorry, $1,165 per hour to operate, uh, not including fuel and pilots. Uh, and so there's a total amount of money that was used for the jet, total amount of money used for the car, Total amount of money used to buy hotels and food for the state troopers who protect them on the beach resort. Uh, definitely worth reading. We hope you take the time to go to justthenews.com and take a look at that today. While you're there, take a look at the other story we broke. We've been talking about the Ukraine investigation picking up steam. Yes, that's the one with Joe Biden, Burisma, Hunter Biden. Well, on Wednesday, Senator Ron Johnson, chairman of the Senate Governmental Affairs Committee, was able to get the very first subpoena issued. In the um, investigation, Mitt Romney no longer blocked it. He joined Republicans and the committee has now issued a subpoena for a firm called Blue Star Strategies, a Democratic connected firm that was lobbying and pressing the State Department to help it get rid of corruption allegations at a time when Hunter Biden sat on the Burisma board, the natural gas company's board in Ukraine. And Hunter Biden's already acknowledged he got the job because of his name, not because he had any experience in um, oil and gas or Ukrainian affairs or Ukrainian legal matters. Uh, he also, uh, we know from records that the FBI obtained, received more than $3 million to an American firm that he and a business partner owned from Burisma during the time he served on that Ukrainian natural gas company's board. So right now, uh, there is a big investigation started in the Senate, led by Red Johnson, Ron Johnson, assisted by Senator Charles Grassley of the Senate Finance Committee, That's going to end up resulting in probably an interim report this summer and then major hearings in the fall. And while that's going on, back in Kiev, Ukraine, yep, back in the capital city of Ukraine, uh, a judge has ruled that Joe Biden, the former vice president, the likely 2020 presidential nominee for the Democratic Party, must be listed as an alleged perpetrator of a crime. That's right. Who got that ruling? Well, the prosecutor that Joe Biden boasts boasted he fired back in 2016, a guy named Viktor Shokin, former prosecutor general of Ukraine. Remember, he was investigating Brisma, making plans to interview Hunter Biden about his large payments when Joe Biden used the threat of withholding $1 billion of U.S. loan guarantees to force Ukraine's president to fire the prosecutor, Shokin, who was overseeing that investigation. So Biden comes to Ukraine, tells President Poroshenko, the current Ukrainian president, you're not going to get that billion dollars unless you fire that prosecutor. And boom, the prosecutor is fired. And the case ultimately gets settled under a new prosecutor taking away the jeopardy that Hunter Biden and his team at Burisma faced. Now, a, a Ukrainian district judge in the city of Kiev has ruled that law enforcement authorities must list Joe Biden, American citizen, former vice president, as the accused perpetrator of a crime against Victor Shokin, the prosecutor whom he fired. The crime, as alleged by Shokin, is the firing interfered with a lawful investigation of Burisma. A lot more is going to come of this in the spring and summer. Let's keep an eye on it. But now we know that the Ukraine-Biden story has got uh, dueling uh, developments, one in America, one in Ukraine. And finally, one last story, because on this podcast on Tuesday, we told you about the Investigative story we did taking a look at how the Obama Biden uh, Securities and Exchange Commission and its nonprofit regulator called the Public Company Accounting Oversight Board gave a special memo- memorandum of understanding, an MOU, to China that allowed it and its companies to be traded on the um, American stock market, the Wall Street and uh, New York Stock Exchange, the NASDAQ without having to fully comply with the Sarbanes-Oxley accounting rules. Those are the rules that protect all Americans from fraudulent accounting, false statements that mislead investors into investing into bad companies. Well, China didn't have to fully comply, and it turns out they didn't even comply with half of the commitment that it made in that 2013 deal with the Obama-Biden administration. And so for seven years, Chinese companies have been allowed to trade on the marketplace without complying, not either with the MOU or with the Sarbanes-Oxley law. Well, right after our story, less than 48 hours after our story, the Senate took up legislation that had been pending for months. It suddenly took up the legislation and approved it. What does that legislation do? It tells China, your companies may not be able to compete on the New York Stock Exchange unless they fully comply with Sarbanes-Oxley. So what will happen if this law gets passed by the House, sent to President Trump, and he signs it, it means that uh, companies in China that don't follow Sarbanes-Oxley, whose auditors don't allow access to the American regulators uh, for surprise inspections and for document reviews, they'll get deregistered or delisted from the stock market. This is a major escalation. And just to put into perspective, in the last three weeks, as we've written about some of China's more nefarious activities on U.S. soil— multiple uh, actions have been taken by the trump administration and now the republican leadership in the senate if you remember about a week or 10 days ago i told you president trump had decided to block the board that invests federal and military workers retirement funds they're now blocked from putting them into chinese contractors chinese military firms that uh, this was a decision that was on autopilot about to happen And the president intervened at the last minute and stopped it. So that was one slap at China. Now we've got the Senate taking action to stop Chinese companies from trading on the stock market if they're not going to comply with our regulations and laws. All major developments, all major impact from stories that we broke for you on Just the News and we talked about on this podcast. All right, we've got an incredible interview coming up in just a few seconds. Former South Carolina Governor David Beasley, an entertaining interview always, He's got a new job. He is the head of the World Food Program at the United Nations. That is the leading edge of our efforts to solve hunger across the world to prevent starvation. On any given day, more than 100 million people worldwide are getting their food as a result of this U.S.-financed, UN-administered program. Governor Beasley has done a great job raising more money for the group and putting it on a path to put hunger, starvation out of business so that the World Food Program can go out of business as well. He's here to tell us about his plan and also his concerns for the rest of the year when the economic impact of COVID-19 and the slowdown of the economy may cause an increase in hunger. You're going to want to hear everything he has to say. We'll be back right after the commercial break with Governor David Beasley, former governor of South Carolina, current head of the UN World Food Program. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. All right, folks, welcome back from the commercial break. And as promised, our next guest is David Beasley, the governor of the the former governor of the great state of South Carolina, a former winner of the John F. Kennedy Profile and Courage Award and the current head of the United Nations World Food Program, The Leading Edge of the Fight Against Starvation and Hunger Across the World. Governor Beasley, welcome to John Solomon Reports.
1: Well, I'm doing great, uh, but it's a a mighty disturbing and difficult time out there right now.
0: That it is. And uh, a lot of our readers, our listeners may not know this, but you have a firsthand experience with COVID-19 because you contracted the virus a few months ago and have been able to uh, beat it. Uh, Tell us a little bit about that.
1: Well, yeah, you you exactly right, and I'm all I'm all over the world all the time, as you can imagine. We we're in 80 something country, so I'm I'm visiting, you know, battlefields and war zones and in very depressed areas, and so, and I'm usually pretty doggone careful. And I'd been traveling, and I, and John, I'd taken two tests. I was meeting with some leaders, and so I better take a couple of tests. And this was two months ago now. It, and getting a test Early. back two months ago was not a problem. And they came back negative because I wasn't sick or anything. I was just being careful. And uh, then all of a sudden, I came back home to the United States, down to my home in South Carolina. I hadn't been there in like six months. And in March, March 13th, and there's pollen in the south around March. And I thought it was allergies. You know, I got a little fever and a little bit of aches and pains, and that was nice. Friday night. Monday morning, I was feeling good, so I thought it must have been allergies. But I said, let me go get another test just to be safe, because I don't want to meet with, you know, uh, Secretary of State Pompeo or somebody, and and I end up giving them, you know, this disease. And gotcha. I went and got tested, and doggone, if I wasn't positive. And uh, but but you know, it never got real bad. I had a little ache and pain, but it just wouldn't go away. It just lingered for three weeks. And maybe if I'd have been a young Young David Beasley, I'd have been all right in a few days. Like my daughter, she got it, and she was over in three days with no problems at all. But it just wow. lingered with me for three weeks. But I'm over it, and uh, I've been tested several times now, and I've got the antibodies. And so I'm actually go about ready to head back out to go to Africa and the Middle East just in the next uh, few days.
0: Well, uh, the world needs you on the road in helping us all to solve these uh, issues with hunger. So we are glad that you're you're feeling better and getting ready to go back on the road. Um, a lot of folks know, you know generally what the World Food Program is, but they probably don't know specifically all the extraordinary things it's done. And I wonder if you could maybe just give us a little overview of just all the various ways that you you touch the issue of hunger and try to resolve it on a daily basis.
1: Well, John, when I got the phone call about doing this the world's largest humanitarian operation, uh, working for the United Nations, and and I'm old Southern conservative governor, and I said, I, I said I'm, not, I don't need a job. Number one, number two, I'm not going to work for United Nations, <laughs> you know. Right, right. And and so I called a couple friends, and they said, look, the World Food Program is a completely different operation. They're the most strategic, effective organization out there and i said really tell me more and then as i delved into it i was like wow and at the time we were facing four countries on famine uh and 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 if you remember trump was talking about zeroing out international aid and once i understood uh the issues and the effectiveness of the World Food Program, then I said, "All right, I'll sit. I'll go talk with the White House, and I'll go talk to the leadership." And this one of the issues that Republicans and Democrats in the Congress come together on on food security. And we feed assist about 100 million people uh, on any given day, month, throughout the year, and we're in about That's 80 amazing. something countries. 100 million. It, it, re- it really is an um, amazing operation. Now, my goal uh, is quite different than others. You know, sometimes you'll talk to organizations, and, and whether it's the U.N. or otherwise, how long have you been in this country? Well, 30 years. I'm like, well, is that good or is that bad? I'd like to put the World Food Program out of business in every so country well. because we've, you know, we've created sustainability and reliance where you don't need uh, self-reliance, where you don't need outside support. And so that's our goals and objective in every single country. And so the United States is our number one donor. We raise our money voluntarily 100%. And uh, when I arrived, we were about 5900000000 billion. We're about $8 billion now. And so uh, now because of COVID, it's a whole different game changer. But, John, before COVID hit, I had been giving speeches uh, around the world And back in November, December, that 2020 was going to be the worst year for humanitarian issues. And I said, we're going to face the greatest humanitarian crisis since World War II. And European leaders and others saying, well, why are you saying that? I said, well, you've got the war in Yemen. you got the war in Syria. you got the Lebanese collapse of the economy there, the banking systems. And then you go into Somalia and the Sahel collapse, and you've got Sudan and DRC and Ethiopia. I said, let me keep going. Then you got the desert locusts. And I said, we're facing a, just already a bad situation. That was before COVID. And so Three weeks ago, I had announced the new numbers on acute food insecurity. And and let me, if you don't mind, let me give you a couple numbers. There are 821 million people around the world that go to bed chronically hungry. That I don't mean they're starving. They just, uh, you know, go to bed chronically hungry. On top of that, 135 million people go to bed every night literally on the brink of starvation now that's where you got serious serious issues and that's the 135 we try to reach and we reach about 100 million of them and out of that 100 million 30 million get their food only from us so you can imagine if our money breaks down or our supply chain breaks down Uh, What would happen to those 30 million people? You can't go a week or two without food. Now, what's really gotten bad because of COVID, the number of what we are now projecting through 2020 is that 135 million people on the brink of starvation is going to double to 260, give or take, million people. And so that is extremely extremely depressing number because the pandemic from COVID is now creating a pandemic of hunger, of literally famines of biblical proportions. That's what we're looking at out there right now.
0: Unbelievable. I, well, I, You know, a couple of weeks ago, I was reading the Washington Post and I opened it up in the global opinion section and there was your op-ed that really caught my attention. I'm just gonna read the headline because it, it mirrored what you just said, but COVID-19 could detonate a hunger pandemic with millions at risk, the world must act. It was a remarkable op ed i I read it two or three times, and it 's the first time I had heard that you had I contracted covid and but while you were at home, you did a lot of thinking about how you want to attack this and I wonder if you could talk a little bit when you double the the overnight you 're talking about doubling the number of hungry that we have to serve. How are you going to go about doing this You, you had some really great thoughts in this op ed well,
1: you know what happened? I was I was getting prepared about a week before the United Nations Security Council was meeting. This is three weeks ago, and uh, and this had already been been pre-planned, you know, several months ago. So we were just going to talk about food insecurity around the world, but then COVID came on the scene, and it was about a few days before I was supposed to speak. Tony Blair, uh, you know, the former Prime Minister leader in in the UK, he called mm-hmm. me. Right. And, and Tony said, David, what what are you seeing out there around the world? And I said, Tony, I said, I'm really, really worried. I said, everybody's looking at this thing strictly from a healthcare impact and only that end of the spectrum. And I said, Tony, let me walk through with you what we're seeing if the same line continues with the economic shutdown and supply chain breakdown, over the next three, six, nine, twelve months, so I said, "Let me walk through some scenarios with you, from country to country, and I'll explain why." And we went through that for about 30, 45 minutes, and Tony was like, "My God, nobody has painted that picture of the comprehensive impact of COVID and the decisions, you know, resulting from COVID." And, and let's just give you a couple examples, like Ethiopia. You know, a country that already has a lot of people that are food insecure. Um, right. They got the desert locust now. They've got a lot of people uh, hungry. And then 50 percent of their entire export revenue is tourism. Well, that's that's down to zero now. Hmm. Nigeria, 90 percent of their export revenue. Is oil well? That's in the tank. South Sudan, 98.8 percent, and I can go through break down each country of their unique circumstances and how COVID and the economic downturn is dynamically and dramatically impacting. These are countries. Some of these countries, like Niger and Mali and Zimbabwe and and Sudan and. And as I keep going, they're barely making ends meet now. And you saw in the United States, we people were panicking buying toilet paper.
0: Yeah, and meat too. Yeah.
1: Yeah, if, yeah. If that's happening in the most sophisticated supply chain system in the world, what do you think is happening in Chad, in Kenya, in Mali, in you know these type of countries who already have fragile economies, who already have great hunger rates? Uh, it's gonna be devastating. On them, and so this is what I said: we've got to look at the whole picture. We go, you know, when I when I talk about our budget and how we help people around the world, that comes. Guess where it comes from? The United States, Germany, the UK, yeah. the EU, and so. If that money is gone because they've got to take care of themselves, right, the economic downturn there, you've got to have stimulus packages, things like that. But guess what else? A lot of people in these countries depend on remittances. I mean, how many Ethiopians do you see or Africans that send money or Lebanese that send money back home to Lebanon or Syrians that send money back home to Syria? That's, that's about a half, a half a trillion dollars right there that's going to be drying up. And so if the supply chain on top of all that breaks down, in other words, countries start imposing export bans, import restrictions, uh, restriction of moving of products and goods and services and people, well, that means if I can't get the food to the store, even if you've got money, you go not eat. Yeah. And so then you You're go have, guess either. what, riots and protests. And if young people can't feed their children and themselves themselves, and they don't have a safety net program, you're gonna have destabilization uh and starvation in Africa. And that's why I said, look, we could see two hundred to three hundred thousand people die per day. Per day. We've had three hundred and fifteen thousand die from covert over five five and a half months, and that's horrible. Uh but if we don't allow the supply chain to operate, and we don't allow the economy uh, to run like it needs to, you go, as Tony Blair said, the the cure is going to be much worse than the disease. And we don't need to pit one against the other. We need to be smart. We need to be savvy. We need to distance. need to be safe. Old people and people with pre-existing conditions have got to be extremely careful. But we can't shut down the whole economy. We've got to figure this thing out. And, uh, and I believe we will, but it is a difficult time out there right now, John. I, I tell you, it is going to be bad uh, in Africa as it starts to percolate. The only thing that makes me have a little bit of hope in Africa is the average age is 18, 19 years old. Uh, that is something that's going good for Africa versus the average age in the United States is around 38, 39. Average right. age in Europe is about 45 years old, give or take. So you can see, you know, uh, Older people don't do as good with this disease as younger people. And me being 63, I found out, fortunately, I didn't have to go to the hospital and, and die. I mean, but still, uh, it, it's, it's tough on older people
0: yeah no it really is and and it is a balancing act right we 're trying to keep people healthy, but at some point that supply chain needs to ro- roar itself back to life or uh, we're we 're in for a long haul so just as you divide and conquer this and and there was a statistic in your in your op ed that really struck me because i wasn 't aware of this but on a on a good day when the economy's good twenty one thousand people a day die from hunger is that correct
1: that's right that's exactly. you do the math how many people die per minute and it's, it's not good.
0: It's numbing. It's numbing. And so you're you're talking about a, a two, three, four, five, tenfold potential increase in that if we can't get a, a grip on, on, on some solutions early. What are the next steps? I mean, when you look at this, obviously more money would help, and I assume the United States is going to contribute. But how do you get the supply lines back on even in the middle of this pandemic?
1: Well, there's several things. And like you say, you can't solve the hunger problem by charity involuntary contributions alone It, it just can't be done and we're going to need all the support we can on that front but you've got to get the economy moving again you've got to get the supply chain moving now what we're doing at the world food program of course we feed 100 million people but you can imagine now the airline industry shut down in africa for example well how are you going to get the medical supplies uh to the african countries and not many people know this, and I didn't know it until I took this role. But the World Food Program is the logistics uh, provider for the United Nations and the in, in the humanitarian world, the NGOs. And so, whether it's WHO or UNICEF or UNHCR or whatever it might be, so now we're we're leasing out, and we already had about a hundred airplanes because we drop a lot of food. In the sky, right. you know, whether it's in the sky or landing, or we've got right. helicopters, trucks, 5,000 trucks, ships on the open seas, because it takes a lot to feed 100 million people. But, but because of the airline commercial industry shut down in Africa, we're having now to pick that up, and so we need 965 million to pick up the tab for all the logistics on uh, carrying the COVID supplies, testing kits, and gowns and uh, ventilators and all the things you need, PPE, et cetera, and carrying the doctors and the nurse and the healthcare responders. And we're actually building uh, several hospitals, temporary hospitals right now, and we're having to uh, facilitate five, six, seven uh, major distribution hubs around the world to be able to move all this cargo this quickly. And about six hundred million of the nine hundred and sixty is just the transportation alone. The rest is the hospitals and the other things that we actually do that nobody really had any clue that we we'd do that. Like in Ebola, we, we are the containment mechanism uh on Ebola. Not many people uh realize that. And people oh, say well, how the world can no. no, no, not many people do. And people are like, How in the world can you get it done? I said, you when you learn how to feed millions of people in war zones and you're having to move food between warring factions, whether it was Russia and the United States and Syria and in Syria, or whether it's between warring factions in Yemen, between the coalition, the Houthis. I said, you know, we negotiate, we move food, we know how to get things done when no one else can. When other people are leaving, we're actually going in. And so like right now with COVID, when most organizations are having to leave the field, 97% 97% of my people are out in the field saving lives and doing what they do best. And, by the way, we just had our first uh, uh, person that worked for a 35-year-old young man in Yemen named Talal. Uh, he died uh, this morning. It was really heartbreaking. But, but that's, yeah. that's our team, John. They put their lives on the line. Uh, they, they take the risk. They, they try to be safe. But that's what I love about the world Food program, and you know it's just an amazing operation and as a conservative republican who's who who's real tight and tough, I can tell you the United States taxpayers are getting their money's worth out of the world food program
0: yeah, I know they are i've 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 been able to at different times in my career to to cover various parts of it and of all the u n institutions it's the one that has the among the most effective delivery systems and the best bang for the buck, there's no doubt about it. Um, what uh, lay out the next three months that you're going to get back on the road? What are the what are the top priorities to try to, if we if we bent the curve on COVID-19, how do we bend the curve on the hunger pandemic now?
1: Well, here's what we're going to do, and this is some of the things I said to the Security Council. I said number one, uh, we've got to get the economy uh, going again, and we got to have the core funding uh, for the number of hungry people. Uh, And so what I asked was the funds that you'd already committed, advance those funds so that we can preposition food throughout Middle East and Africa. Because if the supply chain begins to break down, the cost of the delivery of food skyrockets and we're already seeing that i could break down right now which countries we're seeing spike in food prices a shortage of food job losses uh you know riots protests we break all that down and so we need to get that food out there now it'll save a lot of money and save a lot of lives number two as i was saying we need monies for the logistics hub for the common services for all these operations around the world number three we need the supply chain to keep moving. And so when a country leader starts to break down the supply chain by shutting down a port or a, or a distribution center or the farmers can't get in the field, we, have, we immediately get on the phone with that leader and say, look, if that food doesn't get to the distribution point, you're going to have people starving to death, not just in your country, but in your region. So please work with us uh, to keep this supply chain going. You know, a lot of times the leader will not think about the big picture, long-term impact. And as we walk through it, they begin, "Oh, I see now," and, and we'll we'll change that decision. But then you get countries that uh, that will do an export ban on, like wheat. You're already seeing that in a couple uh, countries, and some bans on on exporting of rice. And we buy a lot of rice, a lot of wheat, so that's having an impact. So we're trying to convince countries; otherwise, you'll have a ripple effect, negative reaction. Then you get into Uh, bans and import-export restrictions, and then you have a true uh, trade catastrophe on your hands. So that's extremely important. And children, you and I haven't even gotten into the children phenomenon. I mean, how many children are dying right now uh, under age five uh, as we speak? And now because of COVID, uh, it's just disastrous. disaster. So we need to keep the monies going for, like, school meals. You know, you got, as of three months ago, you had 1.7 billion children out of school, and now it's 1.25 billion. And out of that, 378 million get a school meal. And wow. many of those children, that's the only meal they get per day, the only meal. And it's one thing to starve to death. It's another thing to be stunted or you don't have a good enough nutrition that you become vulnerable to diseases like COVID, and so this is why we're saying that the number of children from under age five, uh, we are looking just children under age five because of COVID. Every 15 seconds, a child under age five will die because of lack of uh, the access to health facilities and because of the you know food nutrition deterioration. That's 6,000 children every single day just because of COVID, and that's on top of uh, now about before COVID, 9,000 children die every single day now uh, because of starvation uh, or as a result of malnourished from starvation and hunger, and that's about a child dying every 10 seconds. So combine those two together, you will have uh, every uh, six seconds a child dying from hunger and malnutrition, uh, impacted uh, by by hunger alone and by COVID, that's about 15,000 children every single day, mm-hmm. and it, every bit of that, John, is preventable. If we get the access we need, the money we need, we can prevent every single one of these deaths. So, we have to understand the impact that is made when we shut down economies and supply chains. So, we've got to really balance this out and do us good for everybody around the world
0: So um, you work for the Trump administration or you know, work closely with the Trump administration. What is their plan? I mean obviously people have heard a lot of criticism from President Trump about the World Health Organization, but you're an entirely different and effective operation. Where can the Trump administration, where can the United States uh, lead and what are they already doing that we may not already know about?
1: Well, the United States government, as to the World Food Program, has just been amazing. In fact, uh, it, it, no doubt in my mind, we would have so much more starvation, famines and destabilization, war and conflict, if it were not for the taxpayers and the American people who help people around the world and doing it strategically and effectively. In fact, uh, we were receiving about 1.9 billion before uh, Trump was elected, and now we've received about 3.4 billion uh, last year, for example, and the Republicans, the Democrats, they might be fighting over everything else, John, but when it comes to the World Food Program, <laughs> it's amazing how they lay aside their differences and come together. And as I say, we use food as a weapon of peace whereas the extremists or al-Qaeda or ISIS use it as a weapon of war and recruitment. War. Right. And so the United States is stepping up. In fact, Secretary of State Pompeo and I, we sat down last week, just just me and him, talked about an hour. Where are the hot spots? What's going on wrong? Where, where You know, what's going on wrong in places where COVID is now being... Combined with desert locusts and extremist groups and flash floods or droughts, and what needs to be done and you know to, to stabilize these countries and so I was meeting with Pompeo and other other uh, leaders in the White House, as well as key senators on these issues <clears throat> Senator Lindsey Graham, Senator John bozeman, Senator Coons, Senator Merkley, and I could just keep going talking with them. Uh, while they have differences of opinion on other issues, they come together on this. And uh, and that's been uh, amazing to see how the United States continues to lead, in spite of what you might read in the press. But the United States is, when I look at my $8 billion budget, almost 40% of it is from the United States. So when I hear somebody say the United States is backing down multilaterally, I say, I say well, let me just give you some facts. And, uh, and people, when I tell them the numbers, they're like, you're kidding. I said, no, I'm not kidding. The United States is not backing down. The United States is being strategic and effective with their spending. And, uh, and I'll let President Trump and other leaders defend themselves. I said, but I tell you, my numbers are, are, are amazing from the United States. And the United States are the most caring people in the world. And, John, you've seen this in the last couple of years, and I've said this to the Western press. When you turn on the press in the West, it was all Trump, 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 or Brexit, 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 and we've got wars over here, people dying over there, and nobody's hearing that. And the American people, when they hear the truth and you present them the facts, they respond. They care what happens in the rest of the world, but they do want to know the money's being used strategically and effectively. And that's what I love about this great nation of ours. And uh, we got to get more balance of the news out there. And so I'm so grateful that you've given me this opportunity to share with you what is happening out there because I know when the American people hear the truth, they will step up and help people.
0: Uh, there's no doubt. I mean, the, the giving spirit of America is uh, as resilient as, as its determination. And uh, it's we're so lucky to have you in charge of this program at this moment in the crisis. And um, I hope to have you back on in a few months and so we can keep people updated on what's going on, where, where the hotspots are, where we've had success, and, and keep our listeners and our readers informed, sir. So thank you so much for the time today, Governor.
1: Well, John, thank you very much and look forward to talking to you again soon.
0: I would greatly appreciate that. All right, folks, we're going to be back in a second to wrap things up for today. All right, folks, that wraps up another edition of John Solomon Reports, a podcast from Just the News. I want to personally extend my wishes to you and your family for a blessed, safe, and fun Memorial Day weekend. And I want to thank everyone who has served, who has fallen who has served under the banner of the American flag in protecting our country over these last two centuries. We honor you. We thank you this Memorial Day weekend for what you have done, what you are doing, what you will do in the future. We are the most blessed country in America, and the best sign of our blessings is the extraordinary men and women who serve in that uniform. This is your weekend. We honor you. We thank you, and we hope that you and your families have a specially blessed weekend Uh, With good weather, good food, good fellowship, because your service has earned it. For those in the VA hospitals, for those in the military hospitals recovering from injuries, we've got your back. We're there to support you. We thank you for all you've done. I am in awe of the sacrifices that all the men and women in uniform have given us. Uh, When I walk through Arlington every year, once a year, I, I get chills up my spine thinking about the incredible people, the names on each tombstone. The heroism, the selflessness, the incredible courage that our American military exhibits every day. You are our heroes, and you are the most clear example that God has indeed blessed this great U.S. of A. All right, folks, that wraps it up. We'll be back next Tuesday after the Memorial Day holiday. In the meantime, you can keep up on all the headlines by going to justthenews.com. We thank you for your support. Support our advertisers and our sponsors. Check out the website often. We'll see you again on Tuesday. I'm John Solomon, and this is another edition of John Solomon Reports at JustTheNews.com.